From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Quick note that you can find the details of this show and past shows at TonyPerkins.com. You miss any part of today's program, make sure to find it there. Also, want to remind you that the Pray Vote Stand Summit is coming to Atlanta, Georgia, September 14th through the 16th. Not only will it be three great days of information and and motivation from some of our world, the country's greatest thinkers and communicators. We will also have a worldview session for high school and college students. It will be happening on Friday, September 16th, and also a political candidate training as part of that uh, Pray Vote Stand Summit. Visit prayvotestand.org slash summit to register. Again, the website is prayvotestand.org slash summit for all the details. Today on the program, is the situation at the southern border causing a spike in fentanyl deaths across the United States? We'll give you a look at the numbers and talk about what, if anything, can be done about it. Also, a pastor and school administrator in Florida is facing threats because of their school's position about marriage and sexuality. How did they become a target? Is there anything for your church or school to learn from their experience? We'll have that story as well. At the end of the program, Dr. Carl Truman will join us to help explain why the world is the way it is now. Is it really chaotic or is there something logical happening that we should and can understand? He'll join us for what is sure to be a provocative conversation and an informative one as well. But our headlines today, as expected, President Biden announced a bailout for some student loan debt a move expected to cost taxpayers in excess of $300 billion. In a White House address this afternoon, the president said American taxpayers will take on the burden of up to $10,000 in student loans and $20,000 for those who received Pell Grants, for those making less than $125,000 a year. Here's what President Biden had to say about the impact of this student loan bailout earlier this afternoon. All this means people can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities, to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. And by the way, when this happens, the whole economy is better off. Not everyone sees it that way. The president's decision drew fire from Republicans on the Hill who see it as a transfer of wealth from the poorest Americans to the upper middle class while doing nothing to rein in skyrocketing college tuition. After all, 87% of Americans do not have student loans. What will all of this mean for the economy? How could it affect the midterm elections? Joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Byron Donalds. He serves on the House Oversight Committee, the House Budget Committee, the Economic Prosperity and Fairness Committee, and he represents Florida's 19th District. Congressman Donalds, good to see you today. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So first, your reaction to President Biden's announcement about uh, what he refers to as student loan forgiveness. Others are calling a, a bailout. It's absolutely a bailout. Joe Biden is buying votes for the midterm elections, and it's a sad day for the country because we've never gone through this process of just debt forgiveness writ large. Uh, a couple of things. Number one, even Nancy Pelosi said 
a few months ago that the president does not have the legal authority to do this without Congress. That's number one. Number two, uh, actually, most Americans have either not gone to college at all or they have made their payments and paid off their student loans. So for the people like myself who paid off their student loans last year, <clears throat> excuse me, earlier this year, where's my check? Am I going to get my money back? Uh, the answer to that is no, and that's why this policy is so reckless. But number three, and most importantly, the president of the United States does not have the legal authority to cancel contracts. And that is exactly what he is doing. He is voiding a repayment contract, and he does not have <clears throat> the ability to do that. Who's going to bear the burden are taxpayers, most of which did not go to college or already have made their payments and repaid their debt. It is the absolute wrong policy. But when you have a president who is struggling in the polls like he is, he's trying to buy votes, and this is the way he's doing it. Congressman, you note that even Nancy Pelosi said earlier this year that he does not have the legal authority to do this. Who would it be that would step in and challenge the president's legal authority? Well, actually, where I think this is going to come in is in some of the loan servicers. If they're going to make a challenge basically saying that the president's decision is removing income from their, from their firms, revenue from their firms, they would actually have legal standing. I actually think uh, in some respects, Congress has legal standing to, do, to, to raise a challenge because you're talking about a separation of powers issue. But I think because this is so fresh and so new, there's a lot more legal conversations that are going to be had by this. But let's be very clear. There are going to be, in my view, there are going to be, my opinion, legal challenges to this because the president simply does not have this authority. He's just doing it and hoping that the courts don't catch up with him. That's exactly what's happening right now. And perhaps because everything is happening in a political uh, context heading into the midterm elections, the White House may not even care if they lose a legal challenge as long as they are seen trying to forgive these debts. Is that possibly how they're looking at this? Oh, no, that, that's absolutely right. They don't care about the actual legal challenge. What they care about is the politics. So they're perfectly fine with some voters in the country basically being like, oh, my gosh, the Democrats are taking care of me. Let me go be supportive of them. But they simply do not care about the actual legal ramifications about this. They do not care about the debt ramifications of this and what it actually means for the country long term. Congressman Donald. President Biden, uh, let's assume this is going to actually happen. He expressed today his confidence that this will not have a negative impact on inflation. Here's well, what he had to say. He, Let, let's play. Well, I, I got a clip I want you to play. Let's play clip two, and then sure, I'll give you a chance sure. to respond. Sorry about that. Independent experts agree that these actions taken together will provide real benefits for families without meaningful effect on inflation. Do you share his confidence? wrong. Number one, um, the loan, there's been actually a, a, a halt on loan payments, student loan payments from the federal government that's still actually going today. So even if you suspend the debt, the actual month-to-month -month income is already in the hands of these people because they've not actually been forcing people to make their student loan payments. That's number one. Number two, to the independent experts that the Democrats love to cite, actually, who are they and where do they cite it? Because the reality is that these independent experts always agree with radical stimulus policies like this. And number three, and most importantly, when has Joe Biden ever been wrong, folks? He's always wrong, especially when it comes to economics. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know of what he speaks. He's just reading the teleprompter. 
Well, an, another issue, because the, the, the concern about the cost of higher education is real, and there it's $1.5 trillion in student loan debt that has been taken on. The question of whether it should have been taken on is, of course, a valid one. But sometimes we miss the fact that Harvard, for example, has a $50 billion endowment. Yet they charge, it's well north of $50,000 a year uh, for tuition to go to Harvard. Why is it that the federal government or private lenders are making these loans when these endowments exist? Why should taxpayers be involved at all? Um, in our country, we made a decision a long time ago that we would make uh, loans available for people to further their education. And as a standalone idea, it sounds great. The problem is, is that when there's unlimited money going to a specific industry, namely colleges, then the colleges get to raise their prices regardless of the economics on the ground. That's what's actually happened. What we need to do going forward is a couple of things. Number one, we have to stop telling kids that the only way to be successful is to go to college. That is actually not true. It's actually been proven to be very, very false. Number two, if we're going to lend money for college education, then we need to actually lend it on a sliding scale. What do I mean? Uh, what I mean is that if you're taking a degree like engineering or accounting, then we'll lend you more money for those fields than if you're going to study art history or humanities. Because the reality is an engineering degree has far more economic viability in our economy than a degree in art history. And so if the two degrees yield different earning ability over the lifetime of the individual, then we should lend differently on those two types of degrees. That's where we should be going with respect to higher education um, in the United States of America going forward. But we have to stop telling kids you can only go to college to be a success. It is simply not true. There are so many skill sets that can be learned where people can actually make really high wages, have a great life without taking on the burden of college debt. Yeah, and that point needs to be emphasized in so many ways. We have to rethink higher education. And, and the ability to be an electrician or be a plumber is going to be economically far better uh, than perhaps a gender dis gender. Uh, studies degree or an art history degree. But Congressman, I want to switch gears with you. Yesterday, you and a group of your colleagues sent a letter to the Department of Defense calling on them to reconsider the vaccine mandate after the Center for Disease Control and Prevention changed their guidelines. Tell us about that. It's a simple letter. And the letter basically is saying since the CDC has taken a look back and seen that they've been wrong more often than they've been right when it comes to COVID-19, then now's the time to get rid of all these silly vaccine mandates, which were brought to us by Joe Biden and congressional Democrats. Listen, we've lost anywhere from 50 to 70,000 members of our armed forces because of this vaccine mandate, because they just refused to take the, to take the jab in their arm. And so Joe Biden said they had to leave the military. That's absurd. Uh, we have major issues with the airlines and the air traffic controllers. There are news reports every day now, it seems, about flights being delayed and flights being canceled. One of the big reasons for that is because Joe Biden said that if you're gonna fly an airplane or if you're gonna be an air traffic controller, you gotta be vaccinated. That's also dumb policy. We've lost people in those workforces as well, not to mention what's happened to nurses all across the country. It is terrible policy. We should reverse course because once again, Joe Biden is wrong. Surprise, surprise. 
Do you see the change in CDC guidance as an indication that the federal government broadly is going to change its stance, uh, relax some of these vaccine mandates so that people are no longer losing their jobs and we're not experiencing worker shortages over these uh, vaccines? It's my hope that that's what actually happens. But I got to tell you, having been in Washington now for 20 months, I don't think that that the apparatus, Washington, D.C., or the White House knows how to operate in the real world. They make these decisions for a news cycle and they move on and they forget the ramifications or ignore the ramifications of their decisions. So for the people who've lost their jobs, my heart goes out to you because of this terrible policy brought to us by the Democrat Party. Uh, but I don't see them reversing course because it's they're more concerned about proof not proof not being wrong or just being obstinate and not reversing course than actually apologizing to the American people and doing the right thing on behalf of the people of the United States. Congressman Donald, in about 30 seconds, Dr. Fauci announced his resignation. What's your reaction to that? Dr. Fauci, you will be back on Capitol Hill. Can't wait to hear from you. Just because you resign doesn't mean you don't have to answer questions about the origins of COVID-19 and the gain of function research that you helped fund when you were at the NIH. See you soon. Well, it does sound like it's going to get interesting. Congressman Byron Donalds, thanks so much for your time today. Anytime. Stay with us. It will continue to get interesting here as well. Congressman Chip Roy believes the crisis at the southern border is contributing to the latest uh, to the fentanyl death increase that we've seen around the country. He'll join us to tell us why. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us, and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. 
Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. By any measure, the situation at our southern border continues to deteriorate. This fiscal year, U.S. Customs and Border Control has seized more than 10,000 pounds of fentanyl that drug cartels attempted to smuggle into the country and is on pace to exceed the 11,200 pounds of fentanyl that were seized at the border in 2021. Of course, if 10,000 pounds have been seized, it requires all of us to wonder how many pounds of fentanyl have not been seized. As a result, deaths from these drugs have increased dramatically. In the U.S., there were 6,000 synthetic opioid deaths in 2015. In 2021, there were more than 63,000 opioid deaths from fentanyl. But the border problem is not just creating a drug problem. TSA records revealed that the Biden administration has been flying illegal aliens into the U.S. interior on commercial flights, even allowing them to use arrest warrants and deportation orders as a form of passenger ID. Meanwhile, America's school systems, hospitals, and social services are feeling the strain of lax border policies. I think we are going to be joined by, and we are just waiting for Congressman Chip Roy, who is about to join us, uh, to have this conversation. What we are experiencing at the border, and the reason we continue to raise this issue, is because a decade ago or so, certainly during the Trump campaign, the border issue was seen as a race issue. It was often framed in that sense, that people who were for lax border policies were people who were not racist, people who were for uh, strong border protections were the people who were racist. And of course, it was always more complex than that. But it seems that across the aisle, uh, left-wing uh, media, right-wing media, that narrative has essentially been dropped because there's an understanding that there are significant implications for the country. Uh, the opioid and epidemic has only gotten worse over the last decade. And we've seen, depending on the states, and some of the Rust Belt states have felt this most acutely, we saw a dramatic increase during the COVID pandemic lockdowns, where people who were lonely and depressed and out of work in many cases turned to drugs as a, as a, a coping mechanism, and as a result ended up dead with the drugs that they were taking. 
And we mentioned the tens of thousands of pounds of fentanyl that is being seized. For context, it's only milligrams of fentanyl that are required to kill someone. So tens of thousands of pounds getting across the border is a significant, significant issue. Joining me now to discuss all of it is Congressman Chip Roy. He serves on the House Judiciary Committee. He's from the 21st District of Texas. Congressman Roy, good to see you today. Yeah, good to be on. Hope you're doing well. I am. You have consistently sounded the alarm about the deteriorating situation at the border. Uh, are things getting any better? Uh, I wish I could say yes. Unfortunately, no. Uh, you know, Texas authorities are doing everything they can uh, in the complete absence of the federal government. You have a federal government that is purposely refusing to carry out and execute the pretty much black letter laws of the United States to ensure that we have operational control of our border and that people are supposed to follow the laws to come into our country. We're not doing that. We're now being inundated. Border Patrol is overwhelmed. And as a result, you have 107,000 Americans who have died from uh, opioid poisonings or overdoses driven heavily by fentanyl. Uh, the DEA just uh, last few weeks pulled in a bunch of product off the street, which they do every once in a while, and they test to see what's in it. Forty percent of that product was laced with fentanyl. We have thousands of people across this country dying. One pill will kill. Adderall, Xanax, smoking a joint, laced with fentanyl, you're dead. It's no longer just a simple mistake. It will cost you your life. And that's a direct result of China driving it up through our border, which is wide open and exposed. And just yesterday, we had a, I think it was either three-year-old or five-year-old little girl who drowned in the Rio Grande River, uh, children being put into the sex trafficking trade, dead migrants and body morgues along the border. And somehow that's compassionate. And I like to say to all my Christian brethren out there, I'm glad we won a hard-fought victory on life. But it is horrible that the strongest and greatest country in the history of the world is allowing modern-day slavery and sex trafficking in our country. So we don't need to sleep uh, because we had a victory there. We need to get uh, vigilant right now in trying to secure our border for the benefit of Americans and migrants. I think that's a very fair point that you make in all the conversation about life. Really, what we're seeing at the border is a life issue, both for those coming across the border, in many cases just looking for a better life, uh, but also the, the way that the nefarious forces are using our lax border policy against us and in very lethal ways against our population. Uh, one other subject I want to get to you with, though, in Austin, Texas, a fire department yeah. chaplain was fired uh, for expressing his views on social media media about uh, men competing in women's sports. That, I believe, is close to your district. Uh, what's your reaction to what's going on there? Yeah, in fact, I represent uh, that part of Austin. Um, Dr. Andrew Fox, uh, eight years, a chaplain uh, in Austin, a volunteer chaplain uh, with the fire department. He basically uh, spearheaded and set up the program, never had a, a single complaint, was well-respected, uh, worked with everybody in the fire department. Uh, he did uh, post some uh, material online uh, in a social media format, and then somebody complained about it. Uh, he then sat down, met with them, tried to work through it, uh, and, and kind of talked to people about what it was. And then uh, he was ultimately fired by the Austin Fire Department for engaging in free speech for his closely held religious beliefs. Thankfully, our friends at ADF and, uh, are, are helping him sue uh, because he's been wrongfully fired for carrying out his religious uh, values and beliefs. But this is just another example of the woke uh, brigade that is, uh, you know, drive, trying to drive out people of faith from not just the public square, but from the pi private engagement uh, and trying to help people uh, as, as this pastor was trying to do. And, and it's wrong. I'm glad that, uh, that he's suing over it. 
uh, and I'm glad that ADF is uh, helping. And uh, and uh, Tony has been great in highlighting this, and and uh, you guys at uh, FRC generally. Yeah, well, we certainly care about it. Congressman, about 30 seconds, what do you recommend cities do to become just generally more tolerant of the fact that people have different views? Well, I think they should do this crazy thing and read the First Amendment of the United States Constitution and protect religious liberty. Uh, allow people to speak freely. You can figure out how to manage your workplace environment in a way that is healthy uh, to allow the, the free flow of ideas, but you got to allow people to uh, have their private, closely held religious beliefs and to uh, carry out their lives accordingly. Um, that's what the founders laid out for us. That's why our First Amendment is so uh, vibrant, and it's why it's a model for the world. So stop uh, tearing it up in the name of allegedly some sort of, uh, you know, open-mindedness. It's the opposite. Congressman Roy, thanks for stopping by today. Hey, God bless. Take care. Coming up, a pastor and a Christian school administrator is receiving threats over their school's positions about the same issues. We'll talk about that when we come back. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Despite receiving personal death threats and even threats against his family, a pastor and school administrator in Florida is refusing to back down from his biblical worldview. Barry McKean, pastor of Grace Community Church of Valrico, Florida, which also runs a Christian school, has been under fire ever since NBC News published a story that called attention to the school's commitment to biblical sexuality. Rather than back down, McKean released a video address in which he stated that the school would not back away from its commitment to follow the Bible. And though the threats have been persistent, so has he. Joining me now to discuss this is Pastor Barry McKean. Pastor McKean, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. Well, I tried to give a, a bit of a background, but tell us how this all started. Yeah, uh, it kind of hit us out of the blue here uh, late last week. Um, it, really, what happened is in June, we just sent out an email um, to our parents, and we do this every year. During the summer, we just kind of remind the parents of certain policies. Maybe we saw some things in the previous year or cultural things changing. And so sometimes throughout the summer, we'll just send out a few emails here and there to remind our parents, hey, here's our policy on this or that, which they already know, and they sign each year before school starts. And we didn't hear anything back from any parents when we sent that out on June 6th. And then as we started school on the 15th of August, I began getting calls from the NBC reporter, and I just largely ignored them. And then by Thursday, an article appeared, um, you know, criticizing the policy. Did NBC seem surprised that those were your beliefs? Yeah, that's been kind of the most remarkable thing for me is that anybody would be surprised that a Christian school would have these beliefs. But, uh, you know, as he was calling, the reporter then sent a host of emails where I could read the questions, which I didn't respond to. But, you know, the questions were very loaded. And, yes, you just seemed surprised and shocked uh, that we would have such a policy. And when I finally talked to a few media outlets who I thought were going to be more fair, um, you know, I said the same thing to them. It's not just our Christian school. Almost every Christian school, probably in America, certainly the ones I know in the state of Florida, have the same exact policy. And probably I know of about 60 schools that the policy is verbatim uh, as ours. I mean, it's it's literally word for word. And, and let's be clear about this because we don't we haven't read your policy yet. But these are these are orthodox statements about marriage and sexuality and gender. Basically, that boys are boys and girls are girls. You can't switch, and people shouldn't have sex to people with people they're not married to. Is that a general statement about your beliefs? Yeah, that's completely accurate. It starts with human sexuality as the title, and it says God designed uh, marriage between a man and a woman, and sex uh, should only happen inside of that relationship. And then it just kind of goes on from there. And there's a section we did get into because of the, the cultural things going on that, hey, if your child is a boy, we're going to call him he, and we're going to call him by his name or some version of his name on his birth certificate. Nicknames are fine even. But we're not going to play this game where we, we call boys girls and girls boys and, and other things like that. We're not going to allow homosexual relationships within the school, just like we don't allow uh, heterosexual relationships in terms of kids can't come into school and, and uh, be bragging and talking about how, you know, what they're doing in, in their lives. We don't believe any of our students should be sexual at all. So, Pastor McKean, this came to the attention of NBC News. They run a story. Uh, there is outrage around this. Tell me what that's been like. Yeah, so the first few days, I think, um, after NBC wrote the story, and the first day and a half to two days, it was mostly picked up by uh, liberal-type organizations. So the phone calls were in the thousands. We had all kinds of staff answering the calls. My wife and I have answered some, and just the most vile, hateful things. And there was some uh, threats made against my family. Uh, a person threatened to burn my house down. Another one threatened to come find and kill my family. And we had massive authority uh, presence here and turned those things over to them. And uh, we've had to spend uh, thousands of dollars on added security at our school just to make sure our parents feel safe and our kids are safe here at the school. In a similar situation, we've seen a lot of people 
express regret, express remorse, apologize for the pain that they've caused, promise to listen. We haven't necessarily seen that from you in this case. Why not? Well, I, I think a, a couple things. This is a policy that's been in existence for the entirety of our school's 49-year history, number one. Number two, we don't... Um, we don't hate people, and that's what bothered me so much about the NBC article. And then it was picked up by our local NBC affiliate who did an interview live with, with a mother uh, who had pulled her child out of the school. And we were painted as hateful. They said that I went into chapel and said that uh, if you're gay, you're going to hell. I've never said that. I've never uttered those words. I don't believe that. I believe any sin will condemn you to hell if you don't know Jesus as Savior. And so I would never say that. Um, and, and we're not going to apologize uh, for standing for what God has said. I mean, God has spoken adamantly, um, very specifically. There's not a gray area here on this particular subject. So we're not going to back down, but we've never hated anybody. And frankly, I think the maybe hilarious thing about this whole story is we have never expelled anybody uh, for this policy, for, for violating this policy. Well, Pastor McKean, I just want to say on behalf of the students who are watching this, and I know the students in your student body, these these conflicts with the culture are more real than ever, and I think it is more important than ever that young people see our our, our parents, our pastors, our leadership showing this kind of courage and grace under fire because it's coming to them as well. And if you don't provide that example for them, they're not going to know how to handle them, handle this in the future. So on behalf of America's kids and the church as well, thank you for your courage, but also thanks for coming with us today. Thank you so much. And I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, the main reason I decided to even yeah. speak at all uh, is to try to embolden uh, those Unfortunately, in the church. I, I hear you. I've got to cut you off because we are out of time. Coming up next, we'll have a conversation about why this is all happening. Dr. Carl Truman joins us when we come back. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. 
with just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com where you can go back and listen to any portion of today's program or, frankly, previous programs as well. We live in a world of incredible change. Many things we thought we could count on, like the definition of words, are now in a state of flux. Is it as chaotic as it seems, or is there actually a kind of logic underneath the chaos that we need to understand if we're ever going to bring things back into order? Joining me now to bring clarity to the confusion is Carl Truman. He's a professor at Grove City College, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, in my judgment, one of the most important books written in recent times. He recently published an article in World Magazine called Twisted Self, addressing the same topic. Dr. Truman, good to see you today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, in the last segment, I think we had a good setup to this uh, conversation uh, because we talked to a pastor who's had his home and family threatened uh, because NBC News discovered their school's beliefs that men can't become women. And this is something that people would have been surprised to find out they didn't believe in recent decades. Now it's a source of outrage to find out that you do believe those things. It feels like the world has gone crazy. How do you think we should view the dramatic changes we've seen in recent years? Well, I certainly think we should we should find them disturbing. And um, what we're seeing emerging, I think, particularly in the West and particularly in the United States, I think Europe is starting to pull back a little from the excesses. But what we're seeing emerging at the moment is a very subjectivized notion of what it means to be a human person, what it means to be a human being. And in the long run, I think it is unsustainable to build or maintain a society on the view that's, that's emerging because you've used the example of transgenderism there, because this highly subjective notion of the self means that uh, we're likely to be living at a time of, of constant chaos and flux, of, of constant gotchas, as what you've just described coming from NBC. And one simply cannot build a coherent view of society or a vision of the future based on that kind of fragmentation. And Dr. Truman, let's explore that a bit. What do you see as the competing views of the self in this debate? 
Yeah, I mean, one could put it rather simplistically, but I think there's a sense in which uh, I, I would actually move it away from specific discussion of the self, but, but think in, in terms of a broader view of the world as a whole. The big question is, does the world as a whole have a, a moral shape to it? Does it make a kind of sense on its own terms? Does it represent a sort of external authority to which we need to conform ourselves in order to flourish? Or is it just stuff? Is the world simply uh, a giant piece of, for want of a better term, cosmic Play-Doh over which we can exert our wills, over which we can uh, uh, exercise power, and out of which we ourselves can create meaning? I think that's the, the fundamental distinction here. And in the case of transgenderism, if you like, does my body have any authority for my identity? Yeah. Or is it simply a, a piece of stuff that I can use technology to gerrymander into being whatever and whoever I want to be? Now, I'm a fellow in the uh, Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview. That's where I'm housed within the organization. And as we talk about worldview, uh, we talk about the assumptions that people carry around uh, with them that help them understand the world or not understand the world. And one of those has to do with origin. Is it too simplistic to say that these differences, the way we view the self and uh, ourselves and the universe, is just a function of those who believe that the 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 material world has intentionality and purpose, and those who don't? Is that too simplistic? No, I think there's, there's a great deal of truth in that. Uh, and I think when it comes down to the nature of the human person, we might put it as bluntly as, you know, are human beings made in the image of God, or are they not? Are we simply exalted animals? Uh, and uh, therefore, is it, is it legitimate to try to, if you like, transcend ourselves using our technological yeah. skills? Or are there limits that are effectively intrinsic to us, or perhaps you might say imposed upon us uh, from without? So I think you, the way you set up the question is, is perfectly legitimate. Therefore, is it actually kind of logical? If we assume that the assumptions about, about reality that secularists have, being my, my existence is without purpose, it's without meaning, there's not a creator who, who intended something by the way I was created, if that is true, is it not somewhat logical to conclude, therefore, I can define my own reality because there's no one else to tell me that I'm wrong? Yeah, and that is, it, it's sort of the ploy that Nietzsche, the German philosopher, makes in the 19th century. He makes the point that, you know, if God is dead, then we've effectively made ourselves gods. It's for us to create meaning. It's for us to create ourselves at that point. Um, I mean, the problem with that, I think, is twofold. One, that imposes a huge burden upon us, and we're seeing the the price of that now, particularly instead of the transgender movement. Imagine the burden placed upon a three or four-year-old who asks their parents, who am I? Am I a boy or a girl? And the parent says, well, you've got to decide that for yourself. That's, that's a terrifying burden to place on a child. And secondly, you know, you can fight nature for a certain amount of time. And, and with the technological skills we have now, we can, we can fight nature for longer and perhaps more effectively than we were able to do in the past. But sooner or later, nature bites back. Right. Uh, we're seeing already with the accounts of detransitioners that actually the genital mutilation of the human body does not solve the problem that transgenderism is the, the presenting effect yeah. of. So I think you know, we, we like to think we're masters of our own destiny, but there's a lot of evidence that points in the other direction. Yeah. In the specific context of this gender debate then, 
if we want to have a solution, and we do, we see this as chaotic, but we want to try to yeah. solve this. We want to push back yeah. against the darkness a bit. Is it then more helpful rather than having a conversation about whether boys can become girls to have this conversation about whether there's purpose to our existence and purpose to our lives. And if we can settle that, if we can convince somebody that their life actually has meaning, then the conversation about their, their sex and whether there's something to learn from their sexual organs, that becomes easier, doesn't it? I think it does. Although the question is, is that, is that a, a, you know, a powerful rhetorical strategy in the world we find ourselves? And I think it is, but it needs to be tweaked somewhat. And, and what I think we need to do, uh, at least in the short to medium term, is we need to be telling stories. It's, it's one thing to try to argue philosophically about this. It's another thing to be confronted with the story of a detransitioner. Many of your listeners have probably watched the, the Matt Walsh movie, uh, What is a Woman? The most powerful part of that movie is the testimony of the woman who tried to become a man and now deeply regrets it. I think uh, those of us who are concerned about the transgender issue, as with the abortion, uh, debate. Yeah. We need to make sure that we're telling the most compelling and emotionally powerful stories because that will will get us the platform, if you like, then to talk yeah. the philosophy. Yeah, and and you mentioned there the abortion issue, and there is a real connection between the gender issue and and the uh, abortion issue, and and fundamentally it's found in the slogan "My body, my choice," right? Because we use that in the in the abortion context, but it really is about much more than that. It's that I'm in control of myself, therefore I can I'm, I can make these decisions for myself. Now, Dr. Truman, you mentioned these stories about detransitioners and the power that they have, and I agree with you that that is the path to winning these. Do you uh, have hope that these stories uh, are now being heard and are influencing the way people see these issues? I think they are in other countries. Uh, I think we've recently had the great news that the Tavistock Clinic in Britain has been closed down. There's a government yeah. report that's really pointing to the, the bogus nature of the pseudoscience that underlies uh, transgenderism. It's It's been bogus science put in the service of a political ideology, essentially, and that's now being exposed. So I'm, I'm encouraged on that front. I think it will come to the United States. What's discouraging about it is, of course, that every detransitioner story is an absolute human right. tragedy, right. not only for them, but for their family members. And to get a critical mass of these stories, countless right. bodies have to be mutilated, countless families have to be destroyed. So I hesitate to say I'm optimistic because that sounds rather glib. I'm hopeful that the thing will change, yeah. but I'm I'm conscious that, that the tide will only turn on the backs of, of incredible numbers of individual human tragedies. And I think from a Christian worldview, that's an important point to make. As you said earlier, nature bites back. And yeah. because there are rules that govern us, our, our attempts to overthrow those rules will only, in the long run, affirm the existence of those rules and the fact that God knew what he was saying in the first place. But the only way to prove that is through lots and lots of pain that people experience. So as, as believers, our job in speaking the truth is not just to prove that we're right in a debate, but to avoid the tragedy that inevitably results when we embrace lies and live by those. Now, Dr. Truman, in your, in your article, you talk a lot about the fact that expressive individualism has taken over our cultural mindset. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's a term uh, coined by Robert Bell, I think, in the 1990s and, and picked up and, and used by thinkers today, such as Alistair McIntyre and, and Charles Taylor. What it really means is that 
that everybody is, is ultimately defined by an inner core of feelings that they have. And authenticity is found by being able to express those feelings outwardly, uh, by performing those feelings in, in the public realm, by acting public in accordance with them. It also carries a lot of ethical implications. Uh, it tends, for example, to regard everybody else as first and foremost a potential problem, as somebody who can hinder me being authentic, yeah. uh, rather than somebody who maybe I'm responsible to or dependent on, connects to the abortion uh, debate. Think about how does the mother having an abortion think of the child in her womb? She thinks of the child in her womb as an adversary, as a problem that's preventing right. her from really being herself. So expressive individualism, which I think grips the Western mentality, emphasizes autonomy and tends to see all of the human relationships as contractual, not as natural relationships of dependency and obligation. Perhaps connected to that, and another thing I'd like you to expand on a bit, is your idea of the digital self. And you argue that technology has also had a significant influence on the way we see ourselves. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, if, if, if at the heart of expressive individualism is the notion that who I am is who I perform myself to be, then technology really uh, puts that on speed. Uh, when you think about it uh, online, I, you know, I could be talking to you now and, and pretending to be a guy with a full head of hair and straight white teeth. Self-evidently, I am not that. But technology, uh, social media, allows me to perform in ways and pretend to be things that, that I'm not uh, in real life. So technology has, has really generated this, uh, you know, or, or supercharged this ability for self-creation. And it's also, I think, dramatically attenuated uh, relationships of obligation, dependency, and responsibility. Uh, even today, I was driving to work, and I saw a woman walking along uh, the sidewalk uh, with her children talking on her cell phone. Mm -hmm. And it struck me as interesting. There's this mother with her children. And yet she's more engaged to this person chatting on the cell phone than she is to her own flesh and blood uh, walking at her side. So technology has dramatically changed how we relate to each other and therefore how we think of ourselves as individual selves. Well, let's just hope that she was on a quick call with the pediatrician or something. Yes, uh, but I'm we, being very judgmental, yeah. I guess. <laughs> no, I, I understand, guess. though. We, your point is well taken. Now, we do try to be solutions-oriented around here. As you observe the world through this understanding of kind of seeing the, uh, where expressive individualism exists yeah. and influences how we think about ourselves, what are the clues that parents and, and pastors and grandparents and even young adults might, might look for to see where, the, where we have the influence of bad ideas like expressive individualism uh, as opposed to the influence of good ideas? Yeah, I, I think it's it's important, to, first of all, to just to be aware of this phenomenon. Once you become aware of it, you begin to spot it all over the place, and even yourself. So it's important to engage in a degree of self-examination on this. I think when we start to think of ourselves as, uh, as having rights rather than obligations, mm -hmm. uh, when we start to use the first person an awful lot in the way we think about things, uh, when perhaps we spend more time on social media than we do engaging with the real flesh and blood people that we engage with in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. I think those can be signs that, that it's beginning to creep into our lives. It's the water we swim in, so it's hard to discern, but being aware of the problem is part of the solution. And then I would suggest uh, very simple things. Uh, for example, uh, uh, hospitality. One of the things my wife and I do at 
uh, Grove City Colleges, we like to open our house to have students around for hospitality because we want to model to them what real community, not virtual community, but real community, real friendship, real conversations look like. So I would say to people, think small, think local. Think of how you can do this in your own local community. Well, Dr. Truman, I have a high school senior who uh, in the next couple of months will likely be touring Grove City College and, and may at some point be one of those people in your living room. And I would be blessed if that ended up being the future. But uh, before we end our conversation, what's your encouragement to parents and pastors? How, how can they prevent the, themselves and the people in their lives from being seduced by these ideas? Well, first of all, be regular in your church attendance. I mean, that's the most basic part of the Christian life. Be sitting under the word regularly. Make yourself accountable to the word of God and to the local church. Uh, secondly, don't get too discouraged. I think we need to realize that, that cultural change takes a long time. Uh, and what we do today, we're not going to see the fruits necessarily by next Wednesday. The thing to do is to, to, to be laying a foundation today so that 50, 60, 70 years down the line, somebody has something to build upon. So I think, you know, let's get rid of the short-term mentality. Let's be faithful in the place where God has placed us. Let us do the callings God has given us. Let us love the people God has set before us. And let us trust him to use that in the long term for the transformation of his people. Yeah. We are often surprised, uh, but God is not. And Dr. Truman, I'll end with this. One of my favorite sayings, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? And I find hope in that in situations like this. The things that trouble us do not trouble him because he's always known everything. Dr. Carl Truman, thanks so, for, so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. And friends, we hope that encourages you. Yes, there is trouble in the world, but uh, take uh, have no fear for he has overcome the world. I know I just butchered that one. But we're going to see you tomorrow here on Washington Watch. We pray that the Lord will be with you and guide your steps. Until then, we look forward to seeing you. Until then. Fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.